Revelation chapter 5 is where we are heading. I'm going to go ahead and read the whole text, and then we will dive into things. I'm actually, so my iPad just died, uh, and I am trying to pull up my, my notes uh, right now, so we're getting there. All right, Revelation chapter 5. John writes this, he says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And John says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scrolls and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This past week I was reminded of uh, the old American classic, The Wizard of Oz, right? And if, if you remember, there's, there is Dorothy, and Dorothy is seeking home, right? She, she is seeking to find some way back home. The lion is seeking courage. The scarecrow is seeking a mind. The tin man is seeking a heart. And they're told if they, just, if they would just get to the Emerald City 
and encounter the great odds, then all their needs would be met. And so you guys know the story, right? They, they, they find their way through quite the journey to the Emerald City. They, they, again, through difficulty, enter the Emerald City, walk down the Grand Corridor to the open, if you will, throne room of the Great Oz, and suddenly there are these flashes of lightning, these booming thunders. They're taken back, but in that moment, what does Toto do? He goes over, grabs the curtain, and pulls the curtain back, and suddenly you're met with the fact that the great Oz is not so great. But here's the point of this American classic, and man, is it so American. It is so us. They recognize that the great Oz isn't so great, but what they also recognize is that through their journey, they have found within themselves the answer that they were looking for. The lion has found in the journey courage within himself, right? The tin man has found a heart, the scarecrow a mind, and of course, Dorothy, even as is stated in the, in the lines of the movie, she, if she would have just believed in herself, she would have found home already. So American. Just look within yourself to find all the answers you need for this broken life. Everything that you know that you lack, oh, just look within yourself. It's there. You're just not looking within. And it's a terrible agenda. It's a terrible ideal. Look within. Believe in yourself. Be your own Oz, if you will. And anything that seems great, you better bring some sort of cynicism or skepticism to because it can't be that great. Even this past week, I heard another story of another acquaintance of mine who looked within. He goes to social media to renounce his faith in Christ, declaring that he has found a new sense of freedom apart from Christ. He has looked within and found something better. He evidently had taken a look behind the curtain of heaven and found the great Oz is not so great. He found Jesus, in some sense, wanting. Now, you hear these situations, and it can tend to make you a little bit nervous, perhaps a little bit skeptical yourself, tempted to look also within for answers to your sense of lack and need. But the point of this text is not that we would look in, that we would not look in, but that we would look up. Remember, the seven churches were feeling something of a barrage of pressures and perspectives in their own day. The, the Roman political pressures, the Nicolaitans and their agenda, the Jewish synagogue and their influence, the pagan trade guilds threatening the economic stability of these Christians. There was no lack of perspective. There was no lack of pressures which made it tempting to look within to compromise their own faith in Christ, if not abandon it altogether. So, chapters 4 and 5 are intended to get our eyes off ourselves 
perhaps to even confront the feelings of skepticism that we have to combat the pressures and perspectives that are just continually opposed upon us. And how? How do we do that? Well, we are given a window into heaven itself. The curtain is pulled back so we could see, in some sense, the real reality of our moment, so that we might see the true greatness of the real Oz, Jesus Christ. And we are invited then into heaven's roar, this cosmic worship. How are we to guard our hearts from the pressures and perspectives of our day, from turning inward rather than upward, from collapsing in our faith, rather than overcoming through faith? How are we to guard our hearts? Three ways. And if you have the notes from the online document, you can find some of these notes in that document. The first way that we are to guard our hearts from looking inward is to behold God's plan. That's verses one through three. Not too long ago, uh, we had some foster kids staying with us, and so we needed to buy a few beds for one of the bedrooms. And so we thought, all right, let, let's, uh, you know, find something online to make this thing happen. And so there were these, like, really cool, like, iron, uh, black iron bed frames, you know. They were just the, the coolest little thing. And so, of course, it's on Facebook Marketplace. And so we do the dealing there and eventually get these beds and we bring them into the house. And yes, this is going to look cool. These are pretty sweet. And we begin to open up the boxes. The boxes weren't even opened yet. Fantastic. And so here are all these, you know, Ikea-like pieces laying all over the place. And yet we searched and we searched and we searched. Do you have the plans? No. Have you seen the plan? No. Who has the plans? Nobody has the plans. And so, you know, for a few moments, I'm thinking, maybe I can throw this together without plans. Right? Maybe I can just look within, if you will, to all the many pieces that stand before me. Maybe if I can just do it myself, I can figure this thing out. Well, thank God for the Internet. Because it would have been a mess if I would have tried to do it on my own. But this is what is in view here. Without a plan, the world remains in a thousand pieces, in all of its disjointedness and brokenness. Without a plan, there's no ultimate hope. Without a plan, there's no ultimate justice. Without a plan, there's no ultimate healing. Without a plan, the world remains as it is in all its pieces. I'm tired of a world in pieces. I'm tired. January, two, two of our good friends being taken by drug addiction. February, our neighbor shot down, hosting the funeral. I'm tired of that brokenness. This past month, they're doing the funeral of a five-year-old girl who passed because of congenital heart failure. I'm tired of this brokenness. I'm tired of my Stupid Citizens app going off again and again and again. I'm tired of a world in pieces. We need a plan. We need a plan. So last week in chapter 4, you had the opportunity to peer into heaven's grandeur and glory do you remember the beaming rainbow of lights coming from the throne? 
the divine council, the 24 elders assembled around the throne, flashes of lightning, rumblings of thunder from before the throne, and the creatures and seraphim like cosmic bouncers guarding the throne, and all of this rousing heavenly chorus bringing worship to God who occupies the throne. All of that in its glory and grandeur is but the backdrop to chapter 5. Within this heavenly throne room, attention is now brought to the scroll. Verse 1, Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll. It's like the heavenly camera now pans over and zooms in from this kind of heavenly, this big heavenly scene to this scroll that is now in the right hand of him who sits on the throne. All attention is given to the scroll. Now, maybe just as a caveat to all this, maybe you say, how is it that God is on a, on a throne anyhow, holding a scroll? I thought God was spirit. Didn't we just go over that woman at the well? What in the world is all this imagery? It's just that. It's imagery. Remember, we are in apocalyptic imagery. We are jumping into the dream and vision genre. It's images and symbols that are intended to communicate heavenly perspective for our earthly experience. But remember, we aren't to interpret these symbols literally unless the text gives us reason to do that. And remember, we aren't then to just kind of bring our own assumption to what these images mean, our own kind of like newspaper tabloid, you know, um, left behind series, take all that information and just impose it upon the text. We are to let scripture interpret scripture. Okay. All right. Good. And we are not to press too hard on the images that we see here. We're about to see a, a four-hoofed lamb take a scroll out of the hand of God who sits on the throne. It just, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's pretty goofy. But the images are intended to communicate the reality of realities. The reality behind what we see here and now in all of this brokenness. And so here's the apocalyptic point being made in this particular verse. It's that God occupies the throne over all things and he holds in his right hand, his right hand being the position of this unrivaled supreme authority, he holds the scroll, which is simply to say that whatever the scroll is, It cannot be altered. It cannot be contended against. God holds it, and he holds it in a position of supreme, untouchable authority. But now notice this scroll. This scroll, verse 1, is written within and on the back. What was common in biblical times was that legal documents were written on the front and on the back. Instead of continuing a legal document on another scroll, they would just flip the scroll over and continue the legal writing on the back to ensure that no scrolls would go missing, that you would have the full content on that one scroll. If you needed to go to the back, you'd flip it over and continue to write out the legal document there. This document, this scroll in God's hand is a legal document. And as we read in the coming chapters of Revelation, we find that it's God's legal plan for the cosmos. 
The scroll is his sovereign, unrivaled legal determination, his legal plan for all time, for all things in heaven and on earth. It is God's plan for ultimate judgment and for final renewal. The plan has not been lost. No matter how many times your citizen app goes off, no matter how you feel brokenness within or without. The plan has not been lost. The world will not be left in its brokenness, no matter what you feel, no matter what you see, no matter what you know of this earthly ex existence. Heaven holds the answer. God holds the plan. But there is a problem. It is sealed with seven seals. Remember, the number seven is the number of completion. So here the scroll is completely sealed. It is completely inaccessible, which is a problem because the only way to see God's plan realized is to see the scroll opened. The unsealing was not only access to the content of the scroll, but it was that which would send the list. Sent, sent the legal plan into motion. In other words, this scroll requires an executor, one who would unroll the scroll, manage God's sovereign plan to see it perfectly brought to its intended goal. So this means that without someone to unseal it, all of creation would remain suspended in perpetual brokenness. And it's clear, verse 3, this is so important for us. No one anywhere is able to open the scroll. No one is able to open the scroll. No one is able to put God's plan into action. No one is, as the text says, worthy. It's simply to make plain the fact that nothing in this world can bring hope and healing to this world. Do you catch it? Nothing in this world can bring hope and healing to this world. To look within for answers is to look into an abyss of emptiness. Looking within was what brought brokenness about in the first place. That was Adam and Eve. You know what? We think we can do better than God. To look within is sure brokenness and so to simply remedy the problem with the problem is utter foolishness but again we buy into this american agenda of self-empowerment and self-solution look within be your own executor make up your own plans to the odd pieces that lie before you be your own oz but know this, it will never and can never bring about the justice, peace, and healing that you truly desire or that our world truly needs. Verse 3, let's just hear it. No one in heaven on, or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll. The answer is not you. The answer is not within you. For the Christian, this is where we have to begin. How do we guard our hearts from the pressures and perspectives of our day? How do we guard our hearts from kind of faltering in our faith? Well, by beholding God's plan 
for the ages and recognizing that his plan is not found in you nor to be determined by you. Let it sink in. God's plan is not found in you nor is it to be determined by you. But don't only behold God's plan, behold God's lamb. In verse 4, John weeps. And the idea is that he is constantly and loudly weeping. It's almost an annoyance in heaven here. He is loud. He is disrupting what is happening here. And why? Well, no one is worthy to open God's plan. There is no resolution to the brokenness. There is no hope. There is no justice if there is not someone worthy to open the plan of God, the scroll. But suddenly then John hears a voice of command. It's an elder who declares, verse 5, weep. No more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll. Way back in Genesis 49, Jacob blesses his son Judah and he compares him to a, a lion, prophesies that a throne would be established through him, a, a throne that would be established forever. Twelve generations after Judah comes David of the tribe of Judah, who would be anointed king and be himself again promised that his throne would be established forever. However, then during the time of the exile period, God's people are largely defeated. But Isaiah, even previously to all of that, prophesies that, yes, God's people will be cut down like a stump, but the shoot of David would remain. So who is the conquering lion of Judah? Who is the prevailing one of David's throne, David's shoot? Who is the worthy one? None but Christ himself. But notice, this is so important, again, for guarding our hearts against the pressures and perspectives of our world. What John hears and what John then sees are different. Verse 6, he says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. The lion, then, is a lamb. A slain lamb standing as though it was dead. How did Christ conquer? How did Christ go about demonstrating his lion-like power and conquest, not by military might, but by laying down his own life? He willingly entered the jaws of darkness and let it have its full fury upon him. And yet, with all that hell could throw at him, he now stands. And he stands in the center of this heavenly throne room, not bending his knee, not one of the many giving worship, but standing in power to receive worship. But don't be fooled. This is, this is again, so important for us in our day. While the book of Revelation is going to refer to Jesus as the Lamb 27 more times. It's certainly not that he will only conquer through laying down his life. History will conclude with the lamb 
entering this world on a white horse whose robe is saturated in blood and he holds a sword in his mouth bringing justice to the ends of the earth. He will bring ultimate and final judgment upon all. And for many, they don't like that Jesus. Give me the Jesus who dies upon that cross, who is a spectacle of self-giving. Don't give me that Jesus, that lamb, who will damn people to an eternity of hell fire. But let me see if I can help you grasp something of the gravity. I heard one pastor say it this way. If I were to go home today, and there would be another man standing in my house, I would go to him and say, who are you? And pick a name. I'm Ted. All right, Ted, what in the world are you doing in my house? He said, well, I think I can be a better husband to your wife. I can be a better father to your children. I could be a better provider for your family. I could be a better neighbor to your block than you. What do you think would happen next? That dude would not be leaving in one piece, would he? He would not be leaving in one. He would receive something of my wrath. What humanity has figuratively done is walk into God's throne room and say, We are here to rule your world better than you can. We are more wise, we are more able, we are more loving, we are more just than you. We can do this better than you can do it. We can rule this world, we can bring hope to our brokenness better than you. That is utterly offensive and absolutely deserving of fierce judgment. And we are all guilty in that way, looking within ourselves for truth, looking within for answers, setting up our own little feeble baby thrones before the cosmic God of glory. The Lamb has willingly and lovingly borne our guilt in Himself upon that cross to freely excuse us of our treason against the throne for all who would receive it, but he will one day come in glory to judge the world who has rejected his offer. It will be a devastating day. And don't miss it then. Verse 6, The Lamb has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Horns are symbols of power. He has all authority in heaven and earth. And his spirit, the Holy Spirit that proceeds from him, takes full account for all that is done throughout all of heaven and all of earth. He has full power and authority. He has comprehensive knowledge of all things. And he holds God's plan for the destiny of humanity in his hand. Behold God's Lamb. Behold, God's worthy one. You see, behind the curtain, there is no elderly man kind of pushing buttons, pulling levers, amplifying his voice. Behind the curtain is the worthy lamb. 
And as the opening remarks of the book of Revelation say, Behold, he is coming on the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. When he returns one day, it will be a devastating day. But folks, this is how you are to guard your heart from the perspectives and uh, pressures of our day. This is how you resist the impulse to look within, to set up your own little baby kingdom before the God of glory. You behold the worthy one. You behold God's lamb. But then finally, behold God's plan, behold God's lamb, but finally center yourself on heaven. Center yourself on heaven. You say, what in the world does that mean? Well, I have to summarize for the sake of the time that we have here. But verses 8 through 14 is this ever-expanding chorus resulting in cosmic praise. All of heaven and earth are joining in worship. But the point is not just that they are worshiping, rather they are centering themselves upon this reality of realities, upon this heavenly scene, this throne room, this worthy one. All of heaven and earth are centering themselves upon the throne room. Everything is centered on the throne, not just because Jesus, God, is worthy of it. He is but because everything else is only but a shadow of this one reality. When all you can see is brokenness, center yourself on heaven. There is a plan, there is a lamb, and brokenness will not have the final say. Therefore, center yourself on the reality of realities, that there will come a day of perfect renewal, that there will come a day of true hope, And it will come through Jesus, the Lamb of God, who holds the plan of God. What we feel in our earthly experience is not ultimate. It's not the final word. The final reality of realities will be what is determined from God's throne. Therefore, with all creation... We are to center ourselves on heaven. We are to worship, in other words, the worthy one. Now, if you have the document open, there is a, there is a quote from Edmund Clowney on worship. He says this. He says, worship is a meeting at the center so that our lives are centered in God and not live eccentrically. That is, has the idea that it loses orbit that it gets outside of the touch of God himself or out of the center itself. He says, we worship so that we live in response to and from this center, the living God. Failure to worship consigns us to a life of spasms and jerks at the mercy of every advertisement, every seduction, every siren. 
He's saying without God at the center, without a focal point to center on, to orbit around, the situations and circumstances of life will just constantly be pulling and tugging us, jerking us around from one extreme to the other extreme, at every advertisement, at every seduction, at every siren. Without worship, we live manipulated and manipulating lives. Without a center, we're either being manipulated or we're manipulating to get some sort of satisfaction to this life. We move in either frightened panic or deluded lethargy, as we are in turn alarmed by dangers or soothed by empty substances. If there is no center, he says, there is no circumference. If there is no center, if there is no answer to all this, if there is no worthy one, then you are left to look within yourself. You're look, left to look with to what the world has to offer you, which is something that has no true orbit. It's always going to be pulling you and jerking you back and forth. And you will always be left either manipulated or manipulating others for your own sense of satisfaction, for your own sense of self-healing. And it will always, again and again, be empty. Your little baby thrones that we set up in this little world are empty, worthless, ridiculous in comparison to what heaven has to offer us. Now, if you think that worship then is just simply singing, you know, we've, we've kind of missed the point. Worship is attention. Worship is focus. With all the perspectives and pressures of this earthly life, we must center ourselves on heaven. We must give our attention. We must give our heart's adoration to Christ, to the Lamb, to this heavenly scene. As the upper room sings, this is how we fight our battles. This is how we fight the pressures and struggles of our everyday life. We worship, we set our attention on heaven itself, upon the God who is enthroned, upon the Lamb who holds the scroll. We center ourselves on heaven. And know this, this is how we see heaven realized on earth. Do you know what we're doing right now is not just the guy breathing air through the vibrations in my throat that are coming to you and it's coming to your ears and being received and maybe you're making some sort of cognitive sense out of what's happening. This is not all just kind of science happening right now. This is not just tangibles happening right now. This is not just earthly experience. Right now, we are joining. As we're setting our attention on God, on the Lamb, on His plan, what we are doing is engaging with heaven itself. We're living in the overlap. Have you watched Stranger Things? Maybe not. All right. All right. Well, what's the other world called? The un is it called the underworld or? The upside down. All right. Even our world knows that there's something behind all of this. It knows it. And the upside down is not so grim and evil when it comes to the reality behind this reality. No, it's heaven itself. Right now, what we've done this morning, and it may seem like, oh man, drag myself to church kind of a thing. We're not just doing church. 
We're joining heaven right now. We, we are centering ourselves on heaven. We are overlapping with kingdom authority right now. And notice then what the, the song is, this new song that they're singing in verse 9. They're singing a new song. A new song always comes at the mark of a new salvation, a new exodus, a new deliverance. And so now there's this new song because of what Jesus has done. It's a new song, and it praises Jesus for making us a kingdom and priest to our God. How is heaven known on earth? How has the reality of the throne room made known here on earth but through you, through us, through the church, right? We get to be those representatives of heaven itself. And so as we worship, we're connecting with heaven, but now we get to shine heaven out, to see heaven realized, to see the kingdom realized in greater measure, to see something of Jesus' authority realized in greater and greater measure till one day Jesus comes and returns and himself makes all things new. Hallelujah. It has the idea, once again, center yourself on heaven. Not only giving your attention to the throne room, to the one who holds the plan and will see he's the true executor, he's going to see it all come to fruition, but it's also for us to recognize that he has chosen for us in our earthly experience to actually be the channel through which Jesus is made known, through which heaven is realized in greater measure here on earth. And so it's right for us to pray as Jesus taught. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, you, if, this is kind of crude, you're Toto. You're Toto. You're the one pulling back the curtain. It's through you that heaven is to be realized and seen. But man, we live typically just letting the pressures and perspectives of our world get the best of us. Constantly, okay, this little throne didn't work. Well, scrap that. Let's establish a new little throne. While the king of glory stands over all things and says, I am your hope and healing. Look at me, bend the knee to me, join in all of creation in worshiping me, bringing attention and focus to me. That's the grand invitation. And let it just be said, Mohammed is not standing in the throne room. Buddha is not standing in the throne room. You name whatever other religious kind of stream there is, they're not in the throne room. There is one who stands in the throne room, and it is Christ. He is the one who's overcome. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Amen. He is the one we are to look to. We are to center our attention and focus on. Don't go through this week without spending time with him, without centering your heart on, on the throne room itself, the lamb who was crucified but now stands in power and glory, holding the destiny of humanity in his hand. Amen. Don't go throughout this week without him. Oh, I got all these needs, though. I got all these pressures, though. You need him. 
oh, but I don't hear, hear, I, I think this might be a solution for me. I'll just kind of erect my little, my little baby th throne over here. I'll, I'll trust in, in, in the substances and the stuff to be really the satisfaction of my heart. Or, or no, you know, I think I've been designed this way. I'm going to live my life this way. Yeah, whatever God says. I'm just going to live this way. I'll have that relationship, this relationship, this interaction, and that. It's going to bring me satisfaction. No, it won't. It won't. Stop messing around. It is Jesus who you need. He is the only one who can bring hope and healing to our hearts. It's ridiculous for us to think. And my frustration, by the way, isn't with you. I do this stupid, oh, okay, I think this little throne is going to do great for me. It's going to serve me. That just falls apart. It doesn't last. It just brings me more destruction and more brokenness. But there Jesus is again. Hands open, saying, all right, child, come on back. Come on back to me. Come center yourself on my authority and my power and my healing and the hope that only I can bring. Where are you at this morning? Have you been busy this past week, kind of erecting your own little thrones, allowing the perspectives and pressures of this past week to just get the best of you, directing you to all these and the lesser comforts rather than directing your attention to the one who rules and reigns over all. Where have you been at this past week? Folks, the pressures and perspectives will only get more and more and more and more and more and more intense. That's where our world is going. It will offer you more and more stuff that will only prove to be empty again and again and again and again. They are empty promises. That American classic, ugh. It's a fun little story, The Wizard of Oz. But the truths that it communicates are absolutely awful. It's death to look within. Absolute death. You were never made to look within. You were made to look up. You're made to look to the one who has lived for you, died for you, who has overcome for you. Bears the scars in his hand to that end and says, okay, child, Look to me, we got quite the road to, to go now to see all of heaven and earth made new again. I was reminded of uh, this little, this little verse from this familiar song it states this this is my father's world oh let me ne'er forget that though the wrongs seem oft so strong god is the ruler yet this is my father's world the battle is not done 
Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven will be made one. We look forward to that day. Jesus will make all things new again. That the overlap won't just be a mere overlap. It'll be a total convergence. Heaven and earth made one. Let's pray. Jesus, we need eyes to see afresh this morning. Um, Holy Spirit, I pray. I pray that you would do the work even as we would enter into this week to pull back the curtain. Show us the glory of the risen Christ. Show us the one who stands in all power, to whom all of creation bends its knee, even the trees of the field and the mountains. Know what is right. (laughs) They groan awaiting your coming, and yet the promise is that the trees of the field will clap their hands and the mountains and hills will shout forth in singing, at your coming. So Jesus, we do honor you even now. We center our attention on you now. We step into the reality of heaven even now. But we need the help that only you can provide by your spirit. Spirit, you are the seven spirits, the seven eyes, the one who sees and knows, who is with us in all things. Would you empower us? Would you strengthen us? to see heaven realized in greater measure, to be the kingdom and priests that you've made us to be so that your authority, your love, your justice and hope is made known to a broken world. God, we thank you for the plan that you've given us. You haven't left it to us to just kind of figure out how to put the pieces together. You have a plan and you have a lamb. So thank you, Jesus. You are the worthy one who can do what we cannot do for ourselves. But once again, Holy Spirit, we ask, center our attention upon Jesus, even this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. for 